All right. Well, I, I heard a, a, a story this week about a pastor in uh, Rochester, Michigan, and he went in to get a haircut. And, and, and if you know much about Michigan, it's very heavily Muslim, uh, particularly in this particular area. And so his hairstylist was a young Muslim woman. And in the course of their conversation, he happened to mention that he was a pastor and that later in the day he was going to be performing a funeral. Well, she replied that once she had been asked to cut a dead man's hair, and she said they were planning to pay me $150 for it, but I wouldn't do it. The pastor said, oh, really, why not? And she said, I, I just don't like to touch the dead. I'm, I'm afraid they'll sit up, she said. Well, the pastor, seizing the moment, said, you know what? I know a guy who did just that. She goes, oh, gross, you're kidding. He goes, no, I'm not. And then he proceeded to tell her about the Lord Jesus, how he died, rose from the dead, the empty tomb, how he's the payment for our sins. She, he shared the gospel with her. When his haircut was done, she said, are you going to keep coming here to get your haircut? He said, yeah, probably will. She said, good, I'd sure like to know more. See, evangelism is conversational, not confrontational. And I think the devil's biggest lie is convincing the church that evangelism is confrontational. That it's all about, we've got to convince people, we've got to argue people, we've got to just confront a people. But as we continue our journey through this early letter of Paul, we see some examples of what evangelism is supposed to look like. And it's just very uh, casual, very conversational. Um, we're, we're calling this the top 10 list for evangelism. Last week was part one, and we looked at the first five of these principles uh, about evangelism just from the first three verses of our text. And today we're going to look at the remainder of First Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12 and, and, and talk about five more uh, principles. Uh, to put it in historical context, remember uh, Paul is writing here from the city of Corinth where he was located at the time and sending this letter back from Corinth to Thessalonica where he had visited about six months earlier. While he was there, he had seen a great harvest of souls. He and Silas and Timothy had shared the gospel. People had gotten saved. and So he's writing back to these young believers in the faith. Um, it is uh, uh, five different times in 1 Thessalonians, he uses the word gospel, and three of those five are right here in these 12 verses that we've been kind of camped out on the last two weeks. So the question we asked last week that we'll continue to think about is, what does evangelism look like? What are some principles that we can glean from Paul's interaction with the Thessalonians? First, let's uh, review the five principles that we uh, looked at last week from this top 10 list. We said, first of all, evangelism means seizing the opportunity, like that pastor sitting in the uh, barber's chair uh, talking to that Muslim woman. How often do you consider the possibility that what's happening to you at any given moment is actually opening a door for the gospel? Seize the opportunity. Second, we said show courage. Show courage. It's getting harder and harder to share the gospel in a world that's hostile toward God and toward anything moral or biblical, but we need to be courageous because we've got the answer to the world's greatest need. Number three, we said strive for accuracy. We camped out there quite a while last week. It's so crucial when you think about the accuracy of the gospel. It's the gospel that's the power of God to salvation. And so if we are presenting a false gospel or an inaccurate gospel, it's completely impotent. 
A false gospel is no better than no gospel at all. In fact, it can be worse if you're leading people astray. Accuracy is vital to the evangelism enterprise, and so we want to make sure we share the gospel accurately. Number four was search your heart. We talked about how uh, a lot of people have the wrong motive in evangelism. It's almost like they're trying to win. Um, why do you share Christ? What is your uh, motive? And then fifthly, last week we said speak plainly. In other words, be direct, be concise, be clear. We're going to talk more about that a bit uh, this week as we talk about people trying to dress up the gospel. But let's uh, continue then with number six this morning as we pick up the text in verse four. And the sixth principle that I want us to focus on is stay confident. Stay confident. In other words, don't worry about the response. Stand tall. Hold your head high. Speak the truth with confidence. We have nothing to be sheepish about. You know, it's the greatest news ever. Share it with confidence. Now, not with arrogance, not with a contentious or confrontational attitude, which we're going to talk about, but with confidence. You know, if you won the lottery, I don't think you'd be sheepish about telling other people about that, right? Mm -hmm. If you had, you know, got cured of cancer or you know, if your house sells this week and they, con you know, the, the, the contract is firm and there's no repair amendments or anything like that, you're going to be excited about that, right? Why is it that when it comes to sharing the gospel, we, we almost, you know, start from a, 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 a defensive posture? We need to be confident. Uh, Paul certainly wasn't trying to please men. He wasn't worried about what uh, the response was going to be or what people thought. We look at here in verse 4, he says, uh, we speak not as pleasing men. We've been entrusted with the gospel, and so we're speaking not as pleasing men. It's always a temptation to present our message in a way that pleases men and uses methods that will not displease them in any way. Well, that's precisely what Paul did not do. <laughs> he just preached the gospel and let the chips fall where they may. Uh, the Bible is pretty clear that blessing on the message is what's promised, not the method. We, we see no biblical text that indicates if you use a certain methodology, you're going to get more blessing uh, than uh, a, a different methodology. It's the message. Go back to Isaiah, 800 years before Christ. And I apologize, I'm dealing with a cold, so if I sound like my voice is about to give out, it's probably because it is. But um, I barely made it through the first service, but by God's grace, we'll, we'll get through it. But uh, 800 years or so before Christ, Isaiah put it this way. My word that goes forth from my mouth shall not return to me void. It's the word. Remember we talked last week about the gospel is words of truth. That's why it's so important that it be accurate. So Paul said, you know, we're not trying to persuade men. That's what he said to Galatians. Same idea. I'm not wanting to please men. I'm, I'm trying to please God. Uh, if I were still pleased men, I wouldn't be a bondservant of Christ, right? So we need to be confident. We have nothing to be sheepish about. Uh, people's response is going to differ from person to person to person. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict and to, to see a favorable response of faith. Going back to the text in verse 5, he goes on to say, we didn't use flattering words. We didn't use flattering words. We talked last week about speaking plainly, as I reviewed a moment ago. 
The gospel doesn't need to be cleverly worded or disguised in popular appealing language or shrouded in creativity. It's powerful enough just the way God gave it. And so Paul's gospel was not dressed up in flattery, meaning it was free from undue influence. The sense of this Greek word flattery has the idea of using the kind of speech that lulls another person into a false sense of security. Let me say that again. The Greek word flattery here carries the idea of a speech that lulls another person into a false sense of security. One Greek scholar put it this way, flattery is, quote, the smooth-tongued discourse of the orator aimed at making a favorable impression that will gain influence over others. A lot of gospel presentations do that today. They leave the person with a false sense of security because they explain the gospel in terms of a sort of tit-for-tat agreement whereby if the lost person simply does X, Y, Z, or signs on the dotted line, they're going to go to heaven. It's presented in sort of a bilateral transactional arrangement where you're negotiating with the person. And uh, rather than just announcing the good news, you're saying, well, let's just sit down and, you know, uh, let's negotiate a bit here. And, and so they try to entice the other side or lure the other side or get them to accept the agreement. But that's not the gospel enterprise at all. It's an announcement, not a negotiation. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convince the person of the truthfulness of the message. It's just our job to proclaim it uh, clearly. Um, so a lot of people walk away from the altar these days thinking they're saved, uh, this false sense of security, because they've come to terms. They've reached an agreement. They've negotiated a settlement, so to speak. You know, I'm going to stop doing this or start doing this or promise to do this or make you Lord or put you in charge or surrender this. And if you do all that, then, okay, now you're in. And so they say, okay, I'm pretty good. But of course, they walk away from the altar, proverbially speaking, and within a few days, they're struggling with that old sin nature again. And they think, well, I'm not keeping my end of the bargain. I must not really be saved. So flattering words, uh, this, you know, sort of apologetic of trying to convince someone isn't going to amount to much. You go back to the text in verse 6, Paul goes on to say, we're not seeking glory from men uh, or from others, from you or from others. They, they, they weren't using their preaching to gain for themselves praise and glory from men. Uh, the honor and the recognition that they want was from God and Him alone. So stay confident. That's the idea. Stay confident. Don't be sheepish or cowardly or argumentative. Um, share the good news. Sorry, my nose is just driving me crazy here. Trust me, it's much more frustrating for me than it is for you to sit here and watch me with these uh, Kleenex. But Vance Havner was that great wordsmith and powerful preacher of the last century, and he put it this way. We don't have a secret to be hidden, but a story to be heralded. It's telling a story. It's a story of good news. It's a good story. It's an exciting story. It's not something we're trying to convince people of or argue people into the faith. We're supposed to just tell the good news. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. Be confident. Hold your head high. Nothing to be sheepish about at all. Number, number seven, showcase grace. It never ceases to amaze me how often people are ungracious when sharing the message of God's amazing grace. It's so ironic, really. 
but we're not trying to argue with people over the merits of Christianity or the evidences that the Bible is true. We're simply exposing the need and offering the solution. And we've got to do it graciously. And yet so often, gospel you know, exchanges end up being confrontational. Someone says, well, I don't believe you know, in the Bible or I don't believe in Jesus. And so you begin to roll out all these 10 reasons why the resurrection is true. And, and again, there's a place for that. Apolo evidential apologetics can sort of create an opening to the gospel. But the minute it becomes this argument <clears throat> where point, counterpoint, point, counterpoint, I think we've lost the point. I think we've lost sight of the goal. The goal is the gospel is the power of God to salvation. Let it do the work. And, and the devil has done a good job convincing the church today that evangelism is about winning an argument, proving the point. And that's really not what it's about. Showcase grace. When I was uh, 16 years old, I, my first, I got my first car of the day. Well, I got it actually ahead of time, and it was parked out front of our house. But the day I turned 16, I got my license that morning, and I could start driving this car. It was a 1975 Datsun pickup. It was ugly as could be, orange. It was actually manufactured as orange, uh, but it also was orange because it had a lot of rust all over it. Um, but uh, I wanted a car so bad, I'd worked, saved my money, and so for months leading up to my 16th birthday, I uh, cajoled my dad into taking me to look at cars that were listed in the want ads or the, the newspaper, you know. This is way before the internet. And we looked at some ugly pickups. I mean, rusted out, uh, wouldn't start. I just wanted anything. I wanted to, to, that money was burning a hole in my pocket. I wanted anything. I remember looking at one Chevy Love. Remember the old Chevy Love pickups? The thing was even uglier than the one I ended up with. But finally, my dad relented. Yeah, you can get that one. Bought this, uh, this car. So the first day I turned 16, got my license, came back home, drove it to school. And um, within the first week of having that pickup, I rolled it in a ditch on my way home from school. It was particularly embarrassing because it was on the way home from school. So all these other you know, high schoolers driving their cars, all the big school buses driving by, everyone looking out the window, and I'm just so embarrassed. Plus, I had a friend in the front seat and a friend in the back who did a backward somersault as the car flipped over and fortunately was okay. But I was so embarrassed, so frustrated. My mom called my uncle, who was nearby, that run, ran the bike shop, and uh, my dad was working downtown. So my uncle comes, I'll never forget, he just lectured me, I mean, up one side, down the other in the park. And Oh, by the way, the most ironic part was where we ended up in the ditch was right in front of the DPS station where I'd gotten my license a week earlier. So I don't know what to make of that. But we're standing in the parking lot of this DPS station. He's just lecturing me. You know, don't drive dangerously. You should never have a friend in the back of the truck. And you should be more careful. Keep your eyes on the road. And I'm sitting there thinking the whole time, you know, th this is great. But what I really need is someone to pull my car out of that ditch so I can get out of here and people won't be looking at me and pointing at me. Uh, you know, unbelievers don't need to be lectured to. He was right, by the way. My uncle was absolutely right. I needed to hear everything he was saying. But unbelievers, they don't need to be lectured to. They need Jesus. They need someone to give them the answer to their problem, to pull them out of that ditch, that muck and mire of sin. We need to showcase grace. Listen to what Paul says in verses 7 and 8. We were gentle among you. We were gentle among you. And, and the word picture here is beautiful. Just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Is that how you picture the evangelism enterprise? Probably not. These days, it's, it's, it's much more confrontational. It's, uh, it's, it's like you're uh, you know, heading for a fight 
you're wanting a fight. I don't know whose car that is, but it's not mine because my car's not here. <laughs> um, so the word gentle here, it's an interesting word. It's only used two times in the whole New Testament, and both of them are in Thessalonians. Once in 1 Thessalonians, once in 2 Thessalonians. It's the word apios. And get, get this, the meaning of this word gentle is mild in mood. Mild in mood. Gentle, congenial. How's your mood? How's your attitude? See, the devil does not like it when we're talking about the gospel. <laughs> You got me, you know, I got sick, and now we're, black Ford pickup, anybody? A white, oh, it's a Kia, white Kia. White Kia. All right, there you go. Ask and you shall receive. Oop. The car is just agreeing with you. So, Greg, your first job as deacon is to solve the problem. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, how's your mood when you talk to others about the gospel? Is it like a nursing mother cherishing your own children? Is it humble and gentle? That's the attitude Jesus took. Remember what he said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me. Notice, I am gentle and lowly in heart. That's a different word for gentle. This word is the word prowse. It means meek. But it's the same idea. Meekness. When dealing with the lost, Jesus was not angling for a fight. He stood up to the arrogant, the prideful Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes. Sure, we know that. But that was a little different. They were rejecting him and ultimately killed him. But with most sinners, he was gentle. He was firm. You know, he certainly let them know they were sinners in, the, in a subtle way without wagging a finger. Remember the woman at the well, he said, you know, go call your husband, remember, and just reminding her of that. But he was gentle. He was compassionate. In Matthew, we read about how Jesus went, went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel. How did he do it? When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. Why? Because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Is that the attitude that you have toward the lost who are on the road to hell? Or these days there's so much conference, I mean so much division. And that's by design. They're fomenting division, trying to set up for a civil war. You know, it's the, the progressives versus the conservatives. It's the, the Democrats versus Republicans. It's the right versus the left. It's Trump versus Biden. You know, it's woke versus intelligent. You know, I don't know. I don't know I'm not sure what the opposite of woke is. But, you know, it's just division after division after division. And I think we've allowed, allowed that paradigm to filter down into how we share the gospel. So that we see the lost, not as sheep without a shepherd, but with as someone who's, uh, you know, contrary to the Bible and to Christianity. And someone we've got to convince. We've got to tell them how wrong they are. And there's a place for that, to be sure. You know, when you're, when you're talking about social issues and taking a stand for morality and guarding morality, absolutely, we should show no uh, restraint in, in, in speaking out against falsehoods. But when you're talking about the lost, um, you know, we, we want to we have compassion. Notice how Jesus said after he saw these crowds, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. It's what we're here for. 
It reminds me of the street preachers. You've seen these, maybe even in person, if you've been to, say, New York City or places, you know, big metropolitan areas. Certainly you've probably seen it on TV. Who, who yell at the top of their lungs with judgmental, angry tones and words. They're not compassionate. They're angry, like these folks here. You know, God's love is conditional. Really? That's what you want to say? That's not what my Bible says. Or holiness or hell. I wonder if that person really understands what holiness means. Or gangster rappers, hell awaits you. Or homosexuals and fornicators, hell awaits you. Or my favorite on this lady's t-shirt here, real Christians don't sin. Really? I'd love to talk with them about what Christianity is really all about, what grace is all about. Showcase grace. I don't know who this uh, Bible teacher was. I had not heard of him before, but I came across this quote and I thought, that says it perfectly. This is what evangelism is supposed to look like. Evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. That's it. That's it. One beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. Showcase grace. So not only stay confident and showcase grace, number eight, seek heavenly not earthly rewards. Seek heavenly, not earthly rewards. Now, we talked last week about motives and how some people view winning others to Christ like a feather in their cap. Uh, so there's certainly wrong motivations, but there is a proper motivation that Paul speaks of here. And it's not earthly, it's heavenly. He goes on to talk about how he didn't preach for money. He didn't preach for material possessions. He preached for God's glory alone. You know, we labored and toiled night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It wasn't about earthly rewards. We preached the gospel of, of God. Paul warned Titus in his pastoral epistle that there would be those who preached the gospel for selfish materialistic gain. Notice he said there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, meaning unbelieving Jews, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. We could spend all day talking about televangelists and preachers who build an empire of wealth under the pretense of sharing the gospel. I talked about this in my first book almost 20 years ago. I have a chapter on uh, the prosperity gospel and all the preachers that are out there just doing it to make a buck. But the motivation should be not earthly, but for heavenly rewards. Again and again, the New Testament talks about the concept of heavenly rewards, like Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Remember what Paul said in Galatians, I'm a bondservant of Christ. So this idea of an inheritance, context always has to determine meanings. There, meaning there are some places in the Bible where Inheritance is just a synonym for our eternal life, our home in heaven. But often inheritance is, speaks to the quality of eternal life, the rewards that we get when we get there. Every believer will stand someday before the bame of judgment, not to be judged in terms of heaven or hell. We shall never come into judgment for that, Jesus said. Once you've trusted Christ, you've passed from death to life and will never come into judgment. But there will be an evaluation time when we are rewarded with positions of authority and special blessings and crowns and so forth in heaven. So that's a perfectly legitimate reward uh, and motivation, rather, for sharing Christ with others. Uh, 
you know, Paul himself talked about that reward. When he said, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? So run in such a way that you may obtain it. Behave in such a way that you'll be rewarded appropriately. Uh, you know, in, in earthly matters, people do it to re- receive a, a certain crown or reward or trophy. We do it for an imperishable crown, one that will last for all of eternity. So he says, therefore, I run like this, not with uncertainty, and I fight not as one who beats the air. In other words, I'm not just flailing wildly. I have a purpose, an intention. I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself might become disqualified. Now, Paul's not talking here about heaven or hell. He was certainly not saying, I'm afraid I'm going to end up in hell if I don't live right. What he's saying is, I will be disqualified. I will fail the test and will not be rewarded at that bema. He's just talked about in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, that time when, when we will all uh, appear before the judgment seat and our works will be rewarded, whether they're wood, hay, and stubble and burned up or gold, silver, and precious metals. John, the apostle, put it this way, look to yourselves that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. And one of the last things the Bible records Jesus is saying is Matthew is Revelation 22. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. That's not eternal life. First of all, you don't get eternal life when Jesus comes back. You get eternal life the moment you trust in Christ. You have eternal life now if you believe the gospel. Plus, the reward can't be eternal life here because it's based on works, and we know clearly the Bible teaches we're not saved by works. This is the rewards. This is the rewards of positions of service and blessing and that commendation, well done, good and faithful servant that Jesus will say to those who've done things with the right motive. So seek heavenly, not earthly rewards. Think about things from a spiritual perspective as you're sharing Christ with others. It's not just about chalking up another one on the, on the list here on earth. It's not just increasing the size of your church or getting another feather in your cap, as I mentioned. This is about heavenly matters, eternal matters, matters of eternal consequence. So stay confident, showcase grace, seek heavenly rewards, and then set an example in conduct. Verse 10, set an example in conduct. Bad behavior discredits the gospel in the sense that it makes people less likely to listen to it. I've talked before about the the CNN news reporter that I had dinner with one time who was not a believer and he, he told me very plainly, knowing you know, where I was coming from and my worldview, he said, look, you know, he was talking about a particular high-profile uh, alleged Christian. And he said, if that's what Christians are like, I don't want any part of it. And the person he was referring to was giving Christianity a bad name. So to be sure, it's definitely important to set a good example. But before we get to that, I want to clarify one thing that always comes up when we talk about behavior and we've talked about this before, that the gospel is words, not behavior. Because, you know, you'll hear people like this famous poster that you see all over the place from St. Francis of Assisi, do all you can to preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. I've talked about this before. I hate this poster. There's nothing right about this statement. Because the gospel can only be preached with words. If you're not using words, you're not preaching the gospel. We talked about that last week. Over and over again, it's you know the truth of the words of the gospel, which when believed brings eternal life. So people aren't going to get saved because they watch you be kind or gentle or you help someone across the street. But that's still important. It's important to do that because it can be can turn people off. So, But it's not the gospel. So I hate this poster. Every time I see it, I want to rip it up and throw it away. Um, set an example 
in conduct. Paul understood the importance of a good testimony, right? Listen to what he says. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves. Uh, remember what he had said in chapter 1, which we looked at last week, or two weeks ago. As you, have, as you know, what kind of men we were among you. It was very common for Paul in Scripture to appeal back to his gentle and sincere conduct when he was writing places he had visited previously. Can you say that? Can you say, for example, we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity? Can you say to others, we've wronged no one, corrupted no one, cheated no one? Are you setting an example in conduct? That's crucial. Walk in the Spirit, not after the flesh. Produce fruit of the Spirit. Smile, be gracious, and then when sharing the gospel, it will, it will at least give people an opening to listen to what you have to say. But that's not in and of itself sharing the gospel. That's kind of the precursor to sharing the gospel. So set an example in conduct. And then finally, not only stay confident, showcase grace, seek heavenly rewards, set an example in conduct, but never forget, start them out right. One of the biggest missing pieces in evangelism is not the gospel itself, although there are all kinds of problems with false gospels, but it's what comes after someone believes the gospel. It's called discipleship. We don't want to just give them the good news. They place their faith in Christ. They instantly become born again. They're a new person. And then we walk away, have a nice life, and leave them without the tools and the resources to nurture that new life in Christ. Remember, the Bible says if a person is in Christ, they're a newborn babe. They need to be spiritually fed. In the same way that you wouldn't take a newborn baby and put it in a basket and say, good luck. <laughs> but you're going to clothe it, feed it, nurse it, give it food, watch it grow, hopefully you know, feed it healthy things and so forth. And the same thing is true of the spiritual new birth. So it's called discipleship. And the church sadly has confused salvation and discipleship. A lot of false gospel presentations see them as the same thing, so they think the way you get saved is by following Christ. Well, i got to tell you, there are a lot of people who follow Christ that are going to be in hell. There are a lot of people in Jesus' day that followed him. The Bible even plainly tells us that. John chapter 6, for example. Not everybody who followed him believed in him. Some people followed him out of curiosity, like we talked about last week. So following Jesus is not the same thing as believing in Jesus. But once you've believed in Jesus unto eternal life, you ought to follow Jesus. And you, didn't, you need to be taught how to do that. So it goes to the three tenses of salvation. Remember, the Bible uses saved, delivered, in three senses in the Bible. In the first case, you've got justification, which is when we're saved in the past from sin's penalty, the moment we place our faith in Christ. Then you've got sanctification, which is being saved from sin's power as we yield it to the Spirit, walk by faith, and grow in our Christian life. And someday in the future, we're going to be saved from sin's very presence. That's glorification. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Past, present, future. Justification results in positional righteousness before a holy God, never to be taken away. Sanctification is our practical righteousness as the way we live reflects who we are in Christ. And perfect righteousness is that time in the future when this mortal puts on immortality and we're glorified and we're in heaven forever, never to have to deal with the fleshly sin nature again. So justification happens one time at a moment in time when faith meets the gospel and you, beget, you get saved. Sanctification happens at various points in time throughout the Christian life as you yield to the Holy Spirit. And glorification will happen in eternity. 
This first column is what we commonly call salvation. This is the evangelism enterprise, telling people how they can be justified before a holy God by faith alone in Christ alone. Discipleship is what comes next, and this is what is often left out in sharing the gospel. Once people trust Christ, we want to tell them what comes next. Not as a requirement to get to heaven. Thankfully, our eternal destiny is not contingent upon how well we steward the free gift we've been given. Because if we're honest, all of us sin every day. All of us squander this. You know, we, we abuse grace every day. It's just a matter of degree. So we dare not wag our finger at others and say, there's no way that person can be a Christian. Look what they're doing. We better pull that log out of our own eye before we do that. So the fact is, obviously, we're all a work in progress. We're, we're growing. We're trying to, sometimes it's three steps forward, two steps back. But the goal is to stay in the word and, and, and become conformed to the image of Christ as long as we're topside this earth. That's the discipleship uh, process. Jesus, going back to Matthew 11, kind of alludes to both concepts, salvation and discipleship. First of all, he said, come to me. That's salvation. Open arms. Anyone can come. It's a universal offer. Whosoever will come. You know, in Revelation 22, the Bible says, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Let him who thirsts come. And whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. That's salvation. And the invitation to eternal life is so simple and so wonderful and so warm and inviting. Come, come. I mean, who doesn't like that word? Right? Come on over. Come along. Come with me. <clears throat> I'm coming. Right? It's, it's a positive thing. It's a welcoming thing. But you go back to Jesus' statement here. He also alludes not only to salvation, but to discipleship. Because he goes on to say then, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That's discipleship. The, the learning process, growing in your faith. Discipleship. We need to start them out right. Having been saved by grace, we need to give them the tools that they need uh, to grow. In, in our text, Paul puts it this way. As you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, and, and the you here is those who've believed, because verse 10 talks about among those who have believed. Uh, so it's clearly aimed at believers here. This is discipleship. As a father does his own children, fathers train up their children, right? Uh, you know, our children don't have to obey us to be our children. I mean, it seems obvious, but that's the way a lot of people think of the Christian life in the Calvinist world, right? If you're not obeying Christ, you're not a child of God. Well, by that standard, none of us have any earthly parents because we all disobey our parents, right? Uh, no, no, obedience is not a prerequisite to, being, to getting into heaven. It's a, it's a calling on the Christian life that we should all strive for. Uh, you know, trust the Lord, know him, and, and obey him. But then he goes on to say that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's what we want to challenge new believers to do, to walk worthy of God. Colossians 1.10 was one of the first verses I ever memorized as a young man. And it goes like this, that you may walk worthy of the Lord. What does that mean? Fully pleasing him. What does that look like? Being fruitful in every good work. How do you do that? Increasing in the knowledge of God. Remember that no trust, obey model that we've talked about before. If you want to obey God, you've got to trust him. You want to trust him, you've got to know him. So you've got to start them out right. A lot of things that we can tell new believers when they first get saved, we want to encourage them to read the Bible so they can get to know the Lord better. 
want to encourage them to pray, to attend a Bible-believing church, to fellowship with other believers, and, of course, to share the good news that they've encountered with others as well. But we want to give them something so that they will uh, be able to grow up into spiritual maturity. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. That means faith for those who are lost and need to be saved comes by hearing the Word of God. Just share the gospel, let it do its work. But faith for those who are already saved to grow up into spiritual maturity also comes by hearing the Word of God. So we've got Bibles out there in the lobby. If you know someone that's a young believer, give them a Bible. Take them. That's what they're there for, free. We want, want to put the Word of God in people's hands. Well, there's a legend that you may have heard that when Jesus returned to heaven following his death and resurrection, all the angels gathered around him in heaven in great amazement. They gazed at the wounds in his hands and his feet, and they shuddered as they thought about the suffering that he had faced. And finally, Gabriel spoke up, Master, you've suffered terribly down there. Do they know and appreciate the extent of your sacrifice? Jesus replied, no, not yet, but Right now, only a handful of people in Jerusalem know. Gabriel asked, well, then what have you done to let everyone else know? Jesus said, well, I've asked Peter and James and John and a few others to spread the news. They'll tell others who will tell others who will tell still others until the message spreads throughout the earth. Gabriel thought for a moment. He said, uh, you know, knowing the nature of human beings, he said, uh, well, what's plan B? And Christ replied, Gabriel, I have no plan B. There is no alternative strategy. I'm counting on these people. Well, 20 centuries later, Christ still has no plan B. The whole purpose for the church age and the church body of Christ is to share the good news, to go into all the world and make disciples. So uh, as we think about the five points of evangelism that we looked at this week, it was stay confident, showcase grace, be gracious, seek heavenly, not earthly rewards, set an example in conduct, and then start them out right. So the takeaway, similar to last week, is just share the good news with someone this week. We've got gospel tracts out there in a basket by the door as you leave. Take as many as you want. Um, you know, a lot of times people will, you know, kind of dismiss the idea of tracts, and they'll go, well, you know, most of those just end up in the trash. That's fine. I don't care if 9,900 end up in the trash as long as one ends up in someone's hands who can get saved, right. right? And this isn't the only method. You can share the gospel in any number of ways. Uh, you know, we've got a link on the Not By Works website to the gospel in five minutes. Send them the link. Uh, you can share the good news. That's what we've been talking about. Talk to others about Jesus as the Lord opens a door of opportunity. Talk to your hairstylist about Jesus. Tell them that he saved you from the penalty of sin by virtue of his death and resurrection. But this is just one simple way to get started. And when you begin to see how the Lord uses this, I've talked often about examples where gospel tracts have been so powerful. I was talking to someone between the services after the first service who said, yeah, you know what? It was a gospel tract that ultimately led me to faith in Christ. I'd heard the gospel. I'd been in church. But it was when I picked up, a, quite by chance, by providence, picked up a gospel tract. And that's what led me to Christ. So pick some of those up as you leave today, and let's share the good news. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this, uh, just just the great picture that we see in your word of uh, a group of people who heard the gospel, believed the gospel, and then were living out their faith. And Lord, I pray that you'd raise up people within our own local church here that would be soul winners, that would be unashamedly, boldly, confidently, and graciously sharing Christ with others. Lord, it, the time is short. 
It's an urgent hour. People are lost and need to understand that you're the only hope. And so, Lord, we pray if there's one within the sound of my voice that has stumbled upon this uh, video or uh, podcast and doesn't know you, that they would, in simple, childlike faith, come to realize that only your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, can forgive sin and give the free gift of eternal life. And he does it simply by faith, if you'll trust in him and him alone. Lord, we love you and we thank you, and it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.